0: Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Saft Podcast. Podcast. Yes, it is episode 64 now. We're a good way along from our first episode. I don't know why I keep on stressing on that, (laughs) but I'm always excited to see yet another number added to our episode list. So, okay, so last week, what were we talking about? Our last episode, what were we talking about? Yeah,
1: um, the last episode we were talking about... um, brief overview of what our experience was with the conference Mm -hmm. and then we touched up into our head dive into arguments for God's existence and we were touching up about the Kalam cosmological Mm. argument, right? And we were uh, stating what that looks like, so it's a very simple argument to follow, it's a very simple argument to memorize. Right. Um, It has uh, three sentences in it basically. Mm. The first is everything that begins to exist has a cause. The next is the universe began to exist. Right. And the conclusion is, therefore, the universe has a cause. Right. Very simple stuff. Very, very simple. And so we also broke down uh, about how we see that such an argument, what is the type of this argument, like a directive argument, what makes this argument valid. If you, you were to rebut it, what are the ways you can rebut it, and along that lines. So it is a very brief introduction, uh, but I'm really looking forward to diving into the Kalam yeah. and what all surrounds it uh, as we get deeper into this conversation.
0: Yeah. So, uh, touching up on it, let me just try to summarize it, guys. One thing is, I'm terrible at remembering <laughs> things. So let me try to get the three se- uh, statements or three. Yeah. Let's see. Let's let's see how you do. Let's see how you do. Uh, okay. Okay. So one is the universe has a cause that is the conclusion that is so 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 the universe began to exist, no,
1: everything that begins to exist has a cause
0: okay, everything oh no, the first thing that you okay, so the first one is everything Every, that, that begins, begins to exist Oh ah, okay, so everything that begins to exist has, has a, a cause. cause, the universe began to exist, hence yeah. the universe has That's a cause. Right. perfect, yeah, it's actually very simple when you say it yourself, yeah, right. So essentially, we had also talked about what a deductive argument means in the last episode. So yeah. essentially what it is, is um, the, the arguments that you are making for the, for the ending conclusion should be very airtight. So they, all that they can argue for is to, um, essentially, they have to disprove what their first two premises or the statements are. Or show that the logic is invalid.
1: Like I said, you remember the Caesar example. Right. The statements may be true. But if you use the word Caesar in two different senses in those sentences, then the logic is invalid. Right. So one doesn't follow the other. You can't make mm. a jump from the first to the second sentence. So if the premises, that is statement one and two, if those premises are true right. and the logic connecting them is valid, then de facto uh, a deductive argument is airtight. Mm. There is no way around it. Right. So down the line we will look at um, arguing for the resurrection. And there we will be looking at um, the... Uh, The argument, the the inference to the best explanation. Okay. Okay, an inductive argument. Okay. There it isn't airtight. You are inferring to the best explanation, not the explanation. You're seeing what best fits the data. Mm. So there, there is much more leeway for people to play around and bring out Mm. objections. But with the deductive argument, if you have to attack it, these are the sources, the 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 truth of the premise or the logic there. You have to attack it only at these two points. Right. So it sort of it sort of helps us in So it sort of helps us in trying to figure out whether the argument is valid or not because you know where
0: to check to see if it's good or not exactly inductive is like a lot more a lot it's a lot more open right okay and okay so the kalam cosmological argument that's a mouthful mouthful yeah yeah, like, which is like we always say, casey. We just, yeah, we, we, yeah. Can't, we can't we type. can't just keep saying cosmological." It's a, it's a tongue twister when you yeah. say it fast. You can't say it three times. I don't think anyone can <laughs> say it three times without if, twisting their words. If you did, drop it in the comments. Whether you did, <laughs> and we to <just>, <laughs> blindly believe you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. So why why cosmological in the name?
1: So it 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 has to do with the word cosmos, mm. which means the universe. Mm. So. The Kalam cosmological argument, like you said, the conclusion is therefore the universe has a cause. Mm-hmm. So the argument centers around the universe itself, right. which is why you have the word cosmological in it. Right. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is, now there are other arguments that also has cosmological and we'll touch on that later. But if you look at the fine-tuning argument, I was just thinking about this, the fine-tuning argument has to do with the universe. So you're talking yeah. about how there are these constants, like the gravitational It's mm-hmm. a particular figure. Um. Yeah, and uh, there are these indexes. equations out there. So these are these abstract values and constants, and the fine-tuning argument shows us that if you were to play around with these numbers by, th- by the slightest, slightest, unimaginable fraction, um, something like one part in 10 to the power 120. Right. Like so, so it's a, Yeah, it's a very small fraction, and like you said, if you play around with it, you know, the units wouldn't exist, and those sort of drastic yeah. effects follow. But that is not called the fine-tuning cosmological arguments. just called the co- fine-tuning, just a fine-tuning, argu- tuning. It's a fine-tuning argument. So the name is just to... It, it Because of the fact it falls into a group of argument type, mm-hmm. that's basically it. So that's why it's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument,
0: right. because it falls into this group of cosmological arguments. Right. Where do you think this cosmos came from? Like, I know there's astronauts and cosmonauts, as they yeah. call it in Russia Zaref, or something. Yeah. Uh, but where did cosmos come from? I think it
1: has... To my I'm I don't I'm just saying I'm just eyeballing it here sort of. Mm. I think it comes from Greek, Greek mm. language is the cosmos. Maybe. Because I remember seeing the word cosmos written with a K. So right. That's a Greek way of writing it. Mm. So it could be it. You know, yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, let us know in the comments.
0: <laughs> okay. So um that's uh, that's good to know. Is uh, this argument uh, the only cosmological argument that we have right now? No. So that's what I said. the Kalam cosmological cosmological argument I keep on. You know what? Let's just call it KCA. Okay. The... Okay.
1: the KCA, but there is an oomph to it when you say the Kalam Yeah, Cosmog- the Kalam Cosmog- And Cosmog- also
0: it has a lot of uh, relevance to us Indians, yes, right? The, the Kalam, Kalam Cosmological. Kalam. The first person that you think of is APJ Abdul Kalam. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. And, and <laughs> I cannot tell you what APJ stands for.
1: <laughs> well, I've, I've looked it up in preparation for the podcast. Oh, very nice. So <laughs> APJ Abdul Kalam, the full form is Abul Pakir Jainul Abdin Abdul Kalam.
0: I mean, I think that is a word uh, that—that's a, a very strong.
1: Yeah, that is a name that rightly fits the rocket man of India, mm. the people's president. Yeah.
0: So, uh, for those who don't know who APJ Abdul Kalam
1: is, yeah, um, we know that we have a lot of audience joining us from the US, mm-hmm. it's the most listened to yep. base. So, Doctor APJ, the late Doctor APJ Abdul Kalam was a rocket scientist. Um, he was a phenomenal man. He was, he's called the rocket man of India because he helped us enter the rocket age, enter the space age with all of his uh, leadership at ISRO. Indian Space Research Organization. I really hope I didn't butcher that. Um, and then he was uh, presented with the opportunity to be the president of India, the the nominal head of the state. Um, and he is lovingly referred to as the people's president. Yep. The only president to be referred to as the people's president. So he has a special heart, a special place in all of our heart, um, especially for people who are into science as well because of his yeah. um, inspiring role. Um, the other day, one of our church members was mentioning to me uh, that when he went and did an apologetic session at a place, mm-hmm. they were talking about the Kalam cosmological right, argument right. at the, the end. Sort of like somewhere they're asking people, okay, what do you recollect from the whole oh, session? No. <laughs> and the person said, Dr. Kalam argument.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't that was coming. <laughs> so, like you said, when
1: we hear Kalam, yeah, it, immediately, it instantly immediately goes to kalam. Dr. Yeah. Kalam. Anyway, coming back to right. the, the family of cosmological mm-hmm. arguments. So there are three arguments that come under this broad category. Um, so you have Thomas Aquinas mm. um, who p- presented his cosmological argument. Then you have Leibniz mm. who presented his Leibnizian cosmological argument. And then the one we know, Kalam cosmological right. argument. So um, let me just quickly break down what Aquinas and Leibniz mm. argument is. Um, well, these arguments have a lot of emphasis on the philosophical part. Right. So with the when you look at how the argument is built up and the data and the evidence that is gathered to present that um, the conclusion is valid, you will see philosophical arguments brought in. And because you're talking that the universe began to exist, we have a lot of scientific points that can be brought in to show that the universe began to exist. But these are the two arguments, they focus more on the philosophical side. Uh, not so much there may be scientific implications, but they don't specify specifically bring out scientific evidence or as such. Right. And Thomas Aquinas' argument is quite old. So um the, the Aquinas version had to do with the fact that you cannot have an infinite regress. Right. Which is basically that you can't go backwards. You can't regress infinitely. You can't have infinite regress. You can't keep going back and back and right. back all the way into past eternal. Uh,
0: and right. And does that connect to who created God as well? Because that also ends up being an infinite regress.
1: Yeah. So so that is where he comes up with this point. So his, his essential part has to do with that. That you cannot regress infinitely back. Right. Because you need to have a starting point to be at the present. Uh, we will look at that in depth in the Kalam, And so he presents three ways to uh, point towards what he called the uncaused cause. Mm. So this is something that is bringing things into existence like a cause, but this is uncaused. Right. And the three ways he did was, was pointing towards uh, an unmoved mover. So he was looking at the things like, you know, there are things in motion. Okay, Things are in, in motion. They are moving. So you need to have something that is unmoved, not mm. in motion, but can move other things. Because else if this is moved by this, And this is moved by this. And this is moved by this. And this is moved by this. You keep on going on infinite regress. So you need to have, because the essential point was that you can't have infinite Mm. regress. So he pointed to the fact that therefore you must have an unmoved mover. Right. Something that sets things in motion, but is not subject to motion itself. Because then what moved that thing? Right. Right. And Mm. so this is a very rudimentary way of, he was looking at things in motion in the universe. That was his starting point. Mm. So he said, okay, so there must be an unmoved mover. Then the other thing he said was, um, again, the point of this causing that to exist, then something else causing this to exist. So you can't have that also going backwards infinitely. So you must have a first cause.
0: Right. Something that doesn't have a
1: cause, mm. but is causing everything else to exist. The same unmoved mover principle. right? Not moved, but moving everything else. Mm. And the third way he pointed towards it was with called an absolutely necessary being. And let me just it, this is why I said it's very, very philosophical. So there are two types of beings that we can identify as, categorize that So you have necessary beings and contingent beings. Okay. Contingent are things that could have not existed. I'm contingent, you're contingent, the table, everything that you see in this room is contingent. Mm-hmm. Their existence is dependent on something else. So okay. us parents. Our parents depend on their parents, so on right. and so forth. Depend on their parents as in like they depended on them to be existing. Yes. So okay. It is not that I must necessarily exist. Yeah. If other factors were not in place, then I wouldn't exist yeah, right. in that sense. Mm-hmm. So my existence is contingent on or my dependent on other things existing. Right. So I'm a contingent being. So what Thomas Aquinas, again applying the same principle of infinite regress, saying that you can't go back this chain infinitely, mm. said that you must therefore have something that is absolutely necessary. Meaning a being that is not dependent on anything else for its existence. So an unmoved mover that is moving things, an uncaused cause that is causing other things to exist, and an independent, necessary being that can cause other things or can be the source for other things to depend upon. Okay? So these are three ways where he used to point towards um, the idea of, you know, pointing towards his cosmological argument. Um, And um, so eventually pointing towards the uncaused cause. So unmoved mover, first cause, absolute necessary being, all coming into words the uncaused cause. So this was Thomas Aquinas' cosmological argument. Now comes Leibniz, and his is similar to um, Aquinas, but his was on a different route. Leibniz came up and asked this question. Why are we here? It's a question that we sometimes ask ourselves, right? right? You're sitting in a workplace and you're like, why am I here? My <laughs> friends have asked yeah. me this in in college, dude, Bro. what am I doing in this university? And then imagine you'll just like, like go on off. Let horse. me tell you about yeah. Leibniz. <laughs> yeah. why am I here? Hey, completely rhetorical,
0: but you just insert yourself in that. <laughs> so, uh,
1: Leibniz came up and asked, why is this universe existing? So, it must have an explanation for its existence. Mm. And then he was asked, he pointed out the fact that there are things that exist whose explanation is found elsewhere. Right? Their explanation is found as to why they exist. And then he went along that same line and said, so eventually there must be something that is self-explanatory. Okay. It doesn't need an explanation beyond itself. Okay. Everything else will look for its explanation beyond itself. But there must be this something that does not have an explanation beyond itself. It's self-explanatory. Self explanatory. Okay. And so if you take something like The statement like, you know, the universe is past eternal. The universe never had a beginning. Its past is eternal. Even if you say that, the question still remains. But why does the universe exist? What is the explanation for the existence of the universe? So Leibniz took that different route. So that's why they look confusing. And and I was also confused initially at the beginning. With the fact of one thing depending on something else. Thomas Aquinas said it is dependent on something else for its very own existence. It seems like it
0: might have some holes. like Because of how confusing it is. You might feel
1: like... Yeah, I mean, maybe it has to do with the way I'm simplifying and presenting it. Because okay. once you get into the the specifics of the Leibnizian cosmological argument, you touch upon things like principle of sufficient reason. Okay, I remember reading principle of sufficient reason the entire chapter and then having to start again because I had no clue what I read. <laughs> it is so complex to right. work out. But the fact that an atheist philosopher are still grappling at it shows that it is it has some merit to it. Else, okay. like Jesus' mythism, it would be shoveled to the side and no one is going to bother about it. So... Yeah, so Thomas Aquinas went along the line saying um, the similarity part is here. Is that Thomas Aquinas said this thing is dependent on its existence for something else, on something else, and you must have something that is independently existing, necessarily existing. It cannot depend on anything else. Leibniz came and said this thing is looking for something else for its explanation, not necessarily its, its existence as it as itself, but its explanation is found elsewhere. So again, looking beyond the being itself, but in the, in the form of what is the explanation, not what is the source of its existence, and so that's what I said. The the reason I'm we are not looking at these arguments, the Leibnizian and um, Aquinas argument, is that um, they are quite complex for us to break down in a sensible way without opening up holes in the argument. Mm. Like the thing is, when you simplify the language, it leads to ambiguity as to what exactly you meant, right. and that opens up a lot of holes. Yeah. Um, and we will, uh, I think we may get to it in the next episode when we look at the term nothing, right? You have to be very specific ah, in how you define right. it, else, it just opens up a whole lot of right. misinterpretation and confusion, all that stuff. So, these are the other two cosmological arguments. Um, but again, I hope I just
0: quickly clarified right. the confusing part. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so. We hear um, the name like Kalam cosmological argument. Was there a Kalam that came up with the cosmological argument, or what was that?
1: So, about? if you look at the roots of the KCA, it was originally brought up by Christian thinkers okay. to refute Aristotle's eternal universe. So he mm. presented the universe as eternal, and they came and refuted it. So that is where you can find sort of like the the very rudimentary form of it. Mm. Then Al Ghazali a medieval Islamic theologian, Mm. he came up with the very first formulation of it. And it's a a mouthful, but I'll just let you know it. He said, every being which begins has a cause for its beginning. Now the world is a being which begins. Therefore, it possesses a cause for its beginning.
0: Oh, okay. So that's exactly... It's exactly the thing, but it's much more wordy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So
1: uh, this is where you find... Like in this form, this Mm. structured form, the the presentation of the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And then Al Ghazali worked on other ways to point towards the fact that, you know, the universe is a being or the universe has had a beginning and all of that. Mm. Uh, We'll look at that later. And then um, at uh, University of Edinburgh, a young guy who finished his master's in philosophy (laughs) goes there to do a PhD (laughs) under, um, let me get the name, John Locke, who was one of the leading philosophers at that time. Uh, his name was William Lane Craig. He <laughs> was this thin guy who just walked up there, um, and he did his PhD. And his work was on the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Yeah. So a book came out of it. I, I think you can see it here. Um, I think this is the book. Yes, that is the book. The Kalam Cosmological Argument. So that, is, that, is, that is his PhD work. And it is where he presented with the formulation that we are familiar with. With the, the form- formulation that you buy at the beginning, yeah. That was Dr. <laughs> Dr. Craig's uh, presentation of it because Al-Ghazali's was a mouthful. Right. And then Dr. Craig, he looked at the presentation. Um, so Al-Ghazali had brought in some arguments from the astronomical observations that they had at that time mm. with regards to the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn to point to what the universe must have at a beginning.
0: Right. So it's essentially what we are doing is we're trying to prove the first two premises to be undeniably true yeah. so that we can satisfy the conclusion that we are yeah. reaching.
1: Um, so showing that these premises are more plausibly true than they are
0: false. Right. And by plausible, it essentially more means reasonable. that it's reasonable Reasonably to understand. True. What's the difference between probable and plausible?
1: Um, probably, I, I would say probably something that you can quantify in some mm-hmm. sense. Um, plausibility has to do with it strikes us intuitively as reasonable or not
0: okay so it's a more of a qualifier than
1: a quantifier it's, um yeah i guess you can say maybe philosophers will disagree with us using the word qualifier, quantifier <laughs> but to get the point of that's basically when we say something is more probable um it, it's getting going to get quite nuanced but probability has to do with background information right like when i say is, is is that probable well probable based on what based on the background information that okay. I, that's how that's Let's how you calculate
0: make it um, abstract, maybe get, uh, are there any examples that you can think
1: Example of? would be um, Is it probable that I could die of uh, lung cancer? If I smoke? So that is the background information. Okay. Okay. So when you calculate the probability, it is calculated based on the background information that you have. Okay. So when you ask the question, uh, when you see that I, I have been smoking, mm. so that adds to the data set that we have. Right. So now it becomes much more probable. But if you're keeping the whole question of whether I spoke or not completely out of it, you may say oh, it's completely improbable. Mm. But you haven't taken out of the background information. Now, the plausible part would have to do, it may, like, it may not be quantifiable in that sense. And the other, other distinction also with the plausibility is that it can strike different people differently. Mm. Like, now, the next episode, we're going to look at the nothing part. Like, can something come from nothing? Right. Okay. It strikes us so intuitively that things cannot come into being from nothing. But it has to do with plausibility, not probability. So which is why people will come up and say, I think it's highly plausible that that something can come from nothing. Right. So that is the way uh, you're taking a detour onto this. But (laughs) um, yeah, so Dr. K comes with that presentation. And what's unique about the Kalam, and I think we have reached the end of the episode, what's unique about the Kalam is that um, in 2007, the Cambridge Companion to Atheism came out and um, um, I forgot the name of the person who wrote in it. He pointed out that, um, he recently passed away as well, he pointed out that the Kalam cosmological argument that Dr. Craig presented, mm-hmm. it has garnered more philosophical response in journals mm. than any other argument for God's existence.
0: Mm.
1: So even now, I think most recently, Alex Malpas came out with, um, with advanced rebuttal of sort against the Kalam. Recently, there was a massive video that came out that featured some of the biggest scientists and philosophers trying to re- rebut to the Kalam. Why is it this one particular argument decades later is still garnering so much attention? Because it's so intuitively simple, but the the ramification that the argument brings forth and the power that it brings forth is that something that you're reckoned with, <laughs> and the philosophical scientific world has taken account of it. So, which is why kalam reminds is me of uh, Doctor Strange saying, <laughs> "It's a simple spell, but quite unbreakable." <laughs> <laughs> so, right. so that is why, that is the reason why kalam is very effective. It's simple. It brings scientific arguments, it brings philosophical arguments. It is, it makes sense of real life data. It's something that we ourselves can make sense of and uh, it has stood definitely the test of time. So in the next episode, I'm sure that we will be diving properly into the Kalam.
0: Yeah, and stay tuned for that. Alright, thank you so much you guys for connecting with us today and being part of this episode. Uh, be sure to follow us on our uh, social handles, you know, Saft Apologetics everywhere, on, Sa- uh, on Instagram, on YouTube, uh, on uh, Facebook. Twitter, Facebook, and Facebook. Yeah. Right? And uh, yeah, just make sure to follow us over there for more updates. Um, yeah, and thank you so much for being with us on this episode of Saft Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy SAFT Podcast, do consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And know more about us at www.saftapologetics.com.